Come on, everyone, join in. 78 episodes today. It's the 78th episode. Amazing, we've come this far. But I'm, before I introduce this guest, I want to give everybody a minute to get in, start getting comfortable. Remember what we always say, hurry up and get your wine, your drinks. Because this show unearths gold dust every time. Welcome to True House Stories. I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And you know I use this word. I scour the earth looking for the best of the best. And who I'm bringing up today to me is one of our heroes and one of the best in this game. When I started out, we heard his name many, many times from other great DJs. They had always spoken about who they went to to be schooled, to be shown what it was to have a club, what it was to put on a night, what it was to actually create something that never existed before, basically. And this person that I'm about ready to introduce is what I call a major architect in our game, a pre-disco, disco, and dance music. And why do I say pre-disco? Because before disco had that explosion, they were breaking records already in the discos. And they had the huge followings in New York. And I've spoken about this many times with him where he would play a record and a few others, and they can move a quarter million copies without radio play. And that's craziness. Nowadays, we're dealing with streaming, dealing with social media popularity. But back in the time when this man was doing it, it was about the love, the affection, and the adornment of the music. So I'm not going to hold you all any longer. I'm going to go knock on his door. And I'm going to bring him to the stage. I'm going to open his door. Lord knows what he's doing. And I'm going to bring to you. I'd like to welcome and come on and put your hands together for the great Nikki Ciano. Oh, excuse me. I'm just doing my nails. <laughs> Lenny, thank you so much. That was so sweet. I'm so glad to be here. That was such a sweet introduction and so true. You know, I, back then, Robin, my friend Robin would say, Nikki, say something. And I was so shy. I, I, could, I wasn't a good tutor of my own horn. Um, but now that all the history is coming out, I really am starting to embrace it. And I was there. I was right in the middle of it before it even happened. Uh, I think that when I started going out as a teenager, 15 years old, the first major club that I went to was The Loft. And that was the pinnacle of the very beginnings of the dance music scene. That was it. And I was there at 15 years old in the middle of it, being inspired to one day open my own place just two years later. And I did. Um, it was wild. It was I don't wild fun. And what you said, I loved what you said is that we did it for the love. We didn't do it for money. 
because we certainly weren't making any money. I remember my first job at the round table was $15 during the week for the night, Lenny. That's 10 to four. <laughs> I was going to say, please tell everybody that because it's not a two hour set. No, 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 no. 10 to four. When I worked at the gallery, <laughs> someone asked me this morning, how long were your sets at the gallery? I said, I started at midnight and we went until we closed, 8, 8.39 in the morning. And that was all me, all night long. No wonder why I passed out sometimes. <laughs> but that was later on. In the beginning, if you really want to hear Nikki Ciano and, the, and really at my best was 72 to 75, to 75, 76, around there. And then I started using drugs, unfortunately, and had. You want to go chronologically? No, not really chronologically, but I want to make it so people understand how we get to that gallery, you know, because. Okay. We all know. We all know what that changed, the pinnacle part of changing that. But. Well, the gallery was, I would say it was um, the loft commercial. It was, and and some people called it in a book like, um, um, I think it was um, Buildings on Fire or a Club Going to Things on Fire or something like that. He called it the first disco. And in many ways, it was. It was the first time like someone had designed a club from the ground up to freak people out when they were dancing. Whereas David made his home very comfortable so that people could dance and experience a very high level of sound and sometimes good light, sometimes not. I went all out. I was, it was like the, the gallery at 172 Mercer Street was the Studio 54 of its time. No way. There's no way to doubt that. There was nothing before that. No, there wasn't anything. Oh, there was other things like no, the 10th floor and the top floor and all those clubs they talk about, all after the gallery. The gallery was already open at the at the location on 22nd well, Street. What about so Terry was, Knoll? But what about Terry Knoll at Trudy Heller's place or whatever that was in okay, That was before. That right. Was, so that was, was early. There but was some Yeah, that was more. Trudy Heller's was like a bar, you know, and it was, you know, it was really, um, it was like the limelight on 7th Avenue South, not the limelight on 6th Avenue, but the limelight on 7th Avenue South. It was like a bar. It wasn't for us like the jungle was like a club on, on, uh, near the 59th street bridge. I used to go there all the time. It was a after hours, the firehouse on Worcester street, after the Stonewall riots, that became really popular. So there were a few around. Yeah, there were some things around. But it, when you talk about impact, when you talk about records being broken, when you talk about finding records, which was impossible back then, I think I stood at the forefront of all of those things, including building things for my sound system that no one else had. Uh, I remember going to Alex Rosner and saying, I want something that controls the bass horns and the tweeters separately from everything else. And he said, hmm, you want a crossover. 
And the first crossover was built by Alex Rosner and put into the gallery. Let me show that booth picture of you with the okay. two. Now you can see I have my hands, one of my hands on the crossover, actually. My right hand is on the crossover. Um, and it was a little square box and it just controlled the tweeters and the bass. There are other pictures where you can see it. That's Michael Capella oh, behind me, which was my f idol at the time. And the T-shirt says this and that gallery. That was the official um, name on the licensing papers, on the, on the corporation, this and that gallery, because the gallery was taken already. So we called it this and that. Mm. So um, in, you tell, you say one thing and then, so one thing that affected me in my early, early life, when I was growing up, I grew up in a very religious household. <laughs> and my parents forced me into many situations that I didn't want to be in. One was as an altar boy. Ooh, look at that picture. Look at Nikki, the altar boy. And, um, you know, you had your first Holy Communion when you were... Uh, you know, a Catholic. And my parents went to church every Sunday. And this is the first time I'm going to reveal this. Um, while I was in the Boy Scouts, 1964-65, we were away on a retreat and I was molested by two scouts and a scout leader. I, I, I'm not really clear on who it was, but I know who was there. Um, and it was the, it was the thing that colored my entire life and still does. Um, the only thing is back then I didn't know how to deal with it. And today I understand that I'll never recover from that experience I learned to live with it a day at a time. And the thing that really hurt me and blew my life apart, it was sort of like a hazing. Like I was coming back from buying something and they got me in the woods, two of the scouts, and he tripped me and I fell to the floor. And I heard from the bushes, take off his pants. And they pulled off my clothes and my poor 10-year-old body, they touched my penis. And my poor 10-year-old body reacted. And I heard, look, he's getting excited. And then I heard from the back, touch him again. And I went ballistic. I started screaming so loud, I woke up anyone within five miles, I think. But we were in in a very deserted area of the camp. It's still there in Staten Island, that Boy Scout camp. Oh my God. And when my father picked me up after that weekend, he saw it on this face and he pounded me and pounded me. And I, when I got home, my parents together pounded me and I finally told them what happened. My family was very involved with the church. My grandmother died, came here on a boat in 1912 and died 
with $12 million because of a catering business she started. She donated tons of money to our parish. And she had ultimately a statue of the Monsignor who they decided to go see put up by the church. My parents went to see the Monsignor and I'm not saying names here, Lenny, because... No, no, don't say names. Just say say that went to the Monsignor and let's see how fucked up they were back then. They made an appointment and they told the Monsignor what happened. And my mother repeated this to me, and this is the line that kills me to this day, because I was a swishy kid, because I might have been gay very early on. He said, maybe he needed that. They said that? Yes. My mother, unfortunately, repeated that to me. (gasps) And that line has stuck in my head for the rest of my life till now. And That statue, which my grandmother paid for most of it, I want that fucking thing taken down. I want to take it down. And that's something that I'm going to do in the next couple of years to the best of my ability. Um, I can't sue the Monsignor because he didn't molest me. He didn't anything. But I am part of the Boy Scout tort case. Oh, you are in it. Everybody's asking the question. Are you... Are you in that case? And so he yeah. is, everyone. I am part of that case. Um, and Shloman, Shloman, and Shloman, I think it is. Slater, Shulman and Shulman is my lawyers. And um, they, you know, it's, it's, it's a mess right now. They offered us $3,000. Could you imagine to buy out? $3,500. What's $3,500 going to buy? Oh, I spent more than... I know that hundred thousand dollars in therapy since back. Yeah, then. I was going to say at you- least. At least I was in therapy for seven years, and then another therapist for ten years, and then another therapist for eight years, all from the time I was fifteen. Right after this happened, maybe sixteen. No, I was sorry. I was nine when this happened. Nine or ten. So around the time I was twelve. I was acting out all over the place and my parents sent me to a therapist. She basically saved my life. Um, She molded me and told me, uh, I said, my parents hate me because I'm gay. And she said to me, that's their problem. (laughs) She was so fantastic. Thank God for you, Rita Crema. I know you're not with us anymore, but thank God for you. You saved my life and I was able to become a DJ. But the drug use, all of that, that was a direct result of this experience. Because I'm really, right now, you know, after all the therapy and having staying sober for many years, I'm not completely sober now. I do smoke weed and that stuff like that. But I don't do that drug anymore. What, <laughs> what was the drug of that at heroin, that time? Heroin was, was a drug... And I didn't meet it until 1976 when I was 21. So prior to that, I'm like roaring as a DJ. I mean, Lenny, they they used to have this um, magazine called Melting Pot for NDRC. It was Bob um, Casey 
And mm-hmm. I think his 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 friend, who was a great guy, they were all great guys. And I remember opening night of the new gallery because we closed down for several months. They closed a lot of clubs down for improper fire exits, including Mancuso. He got um, a not the same improper fire exits. He got closed down for, I think, structural damages. But he didn't cause any structural damage because he took out, he made an arch into the next loft. But get this, the arch was already there. He just removed the bricks that they had put in to break up the two apartments. So he didn't structurally change anything. He just removed something that was put in at a later date anyhow. And they got him for that. They made a big deal out of that. Then at my club, it was, we didn't have two proper fire exits. Now, we had a fire exit in the back and a fire exit in the front. So we said to the guy, what's the problem? Well, when there were so many robberies in this neighborhood, they built big walls between each property. And really, the back exit was supposed to exit through the next building, not down through our building, because we already, the front exit went down through our building. So the back, we didn't even know this. We were clueless. They gave us a a certificate of occupancy. Uh, You think they would have checked when, before they gave us that, but they didn't. Okay, fine. So um, we were closed down when they went around and closed a bunch of places, 10th floor, I think. A bunch of places were um, in their purview at the time and closed down. So, um, Nikki, can I ask you something? Mm-hmm. Do you think that was the mafia doing that at the time? The ones that didn't control weren't giving payouts? I don't know because the mafia really didn't consider us a threat. We didn't serve alcohol. So their big thing was serving alcohol. It might have been, but that wasn't what we got because it was a massive campaign by the city to close these places down. It wasn't one place or two places. It was like 10 places got closed. So then we moved to 172 Mercer Street and that became... Which is also true. Most people know the gallery. Right. That's that is the front of the building today. And but the block. But that's where it was in that in those black doors. Right. And then back then, this is what it looked like. <laughs> full, full of people hanging out. And this is, yeah. It's like the outside of the garage many years right. later. But right. we're re- we were recording an interview with this guy for the movie Love is a Message, which is going to use some of the footage here and a lot of the footage. Um, and it, that, that will be out in one year. So anyway, this is what the front looked like. Um, so explaining that now, so you have the black doors is the front. So the actual the back door, the door here is closed. You see the gray between you see the. Um, the window that says forever. Yes. See the window that says forever. Below uh-huh. that is that black door. That gray wall. Oh, yeah, it would be with step that black door that that guy is sitting in front of. Right. It was, it's closed off. So you went, entered right there. You went up a few stairs. You came around a little office. You mm-hmm. paid, and people said, thank you very much. And you were checked in. 
by a invitation. You had to have an invitation to the party. You were allowed guests. And then you turned around and there was a big room with the concession, lots of food. Why? Okay, this is the old gallery. No, I'm trying I'm to what we have. This is the first gallery, which is you see how down home this looks. This is really then if we have a picture of the new gallery, uh, the concession area, it's um, really polished. My brother built a fantastic mosaic and on the front of the bar that we used to all the food. And it was a really um it was trying, we, we tried to do as much as possible to move the envelope forward with the budget that we had. And I think we did it. Um, do you have a, a, a picture of maybe the, the um, lighting system above the dance let floor? What, let me see what I have here. We have I, that okay, picture. This is all the old gallery. Oh, now, no- hold, hold that a second. Okay. You, as, as you notice, like, what can you do with no money? <laughs> corral fences around the end where people sat all night. Um, right in front of me was the dance floor there. And you can see another picture of the dance floor um, of yeah, the yeah. old old gallery, which is a smaller, low ceiling. See how low the ceilings? My booth was two feet up, but the ceilings are right above my head. Right. And I'm two feet up. But I have a picture of this of this room. This is a new gallery now. See the balloons? It's on a lighting system that we designed that was three levels high, and the room itself was about three stories high. So the lighting system was on three different levels. And it went so that you would see like blue, green, red to the top. And it was all on switches. Robert De Silva, who ended up at, at Studio 54, was my light man and the love of my life. Um, One of the best light men in New York City. No he, did, he did a lot of the design. And, and you see the tweeters hanging there. Um, I was the second person to get tweeter arrays. I was the first person to get bass horns built for me. Um, and um, it was all in the pursuit of the perfect sound system. And one of the greatest things that we did that was never done before is spectrum analyzation. There was no spectrum analyzation going on in discos, in clubs. Uh, And in the old gallery, the first gallery that you showed, I wanted it to sound warmer and deeper. And he said, you know what? We can do this. It was called an Acousta Voice set. It was a very intricate EQ setting set. It had like, right. So the set was on my right in this little right shelving unit. And it was on the, it looks like an amplifier, but it's got all little um, sliding levels. Mm -hmm. And how they set that was through a spectrum analyzer, which was a, a scope that was generated by a microphone in, was the scope. Um, output was generated through a microphone put on the center of the dance floor. And I never get this right. Pink noise or white noise? Which is it, Lenny? White noise. Yeah, yeah, that's it. White noise, white noise. And you would see the deficiencies in the EQ of the room. And this piece of equipment compensated for those deficiencies. Now, it was only used in theaters. 
before I used it. And when I used it in a club, it was it was the groundbreaking piece of equipment for me that turned those Altec A7s into clip shorts. <laughs> I mean, it actually made them sound so right. good and so warm because of the spectrum analyzation, which was not being done in clubs yet, ever. No one was doing it until later in the decade. So there was no, like, so for example, there was no Al Firestein running around yet like he did. <laughs> <laughs> Do like when he went to go and and talk to Michael Brody about doing the acoustics in the garage. There was none of that, right? No. There was a guy named Alex Rosner, and he was the most popular sound person. And up and coming was a guy named Richard Long. Now, Dick Long. Yeah. <laughs> when I when I um, first wanted to open the club, and we had exactly ten thousand dollars. My brother had an accident. And he received the settlement right before we came, Robin and I came over with the perspective and, and a, a prospectus and a, an outline for how we wanted to build the club and, and a breakdown of all the costs. And it came to like $9,400. And he said, did you guys know? And I said, no. And, and we didn't know. We didn't know. That's what I was going to ask. Did you have any idea about his lawsuit? No, no. No, I had no idea. The only reason we went to him was because he was the only adult we knew who would listen to us like that. I mean, I was 17. Robin was 17. My brother was 27. Okay, Nikki, where, you know, like, uh, let me let me step back a little bit. Like with DC LaRue, he tells me- I wanted to just tell you what. So I'm going to ask, this is the question. I, you have to say this. What was the dream? Where were you then? You guys said, holy smoke, I'm going to build a club. Or like, I want to do this. What's the dream part? Who, where are okay. you? Well, we started, my brother, like I said, would give little parties in his house. Now, Robin and I were hanging out outside Stonewall, listening to the music. And I was buying all that music. I had finally found Colony Records, which was the only record store that handled all those singles back then. Nix wasn't open yet in the train station. Um so that which was downstairs records. Um so and and certainly Carmine Street wasn't open with um with the great uh, and lovable um what is his name? Holly Grapone? Yes. Final Mania, yeah of course. Yeah. Final Mania. That's later yeah. than yeah. 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 <laughs> so anyway um Robin and I we're at this party at my brother's house and everyone, I want to dance. I want to dance. But meanwhile, they're playing like not, they're playing Led Zeppelin, but not like Inagata DeVita, maybe you can, or well, Inagata DeVita was something else, or not whole lot of love, which was something you could kind of move to. They're playing like Stairway to Heaven and all these ballads. And I said, well, they're never going to dance to this. So I moseyed over to the turntable and I start flipping on my 45s and people are getting up and dancing. And this girl comes over to me and she says, hi, I'm going out with your brother. My name's Dale. And she was a teacher. Do you like this music? I said, I love this music. She said, well, you go out dancing? I said, no, we're, you know, we're 15 and 16. You know, we're, we, we can't get in anywhere. I know a place where you can get in. I'm a member. And 
but it's not a membership. It's a place where people go to party and you're invited to the party. We call it the loft or some people call it David's loft. Come to my house Saturday night and we'll go. So that's exactly what Robin and I did. And we went to the loft for the first time and it was spectacular, wonderful. Wasn't my aha moment yet. I think the third or the fourth time I was there. And now I had been to the firehouse. Did you, is this how you looked at the time you went? Yes. That, that's you look at that really good. He was 15 years old. And um, yeah, so I'm, this is another little place that opened. And so we are at the loft and having a few little club experiences under our belt. David is playing a record and I thought it was Girl You Need to Change, but the timing doesn't work out for that record. I don't know what it was, but he, like he often did back then, not later on, but often did back then, he flashed a big white light and then threw everyone into darkness and everyone screamed, ah, I loved that guy. He was at the loft all the time. And then my lights adjust, my lights, my eyes adjusted, and I see a lamp on at the other end of the room and two people sitting there. And it was the only thing I was looking at because it was the only light on in the room. Then the song changes into another little breakdown and that fucking lamp dimmed out, (laughs) dimmed and went out. And then there was no light in that room and people were screaming their asses off. And I leaned into Robin and I said, I have to do this. I have to do this. And already I was passionate about the love of the music, but right then I got, He's creating atmosphere. That's what I want to do. I want to do more than play records. I want to create an atmosphere for people. And sure enough, you know, we eventually did. Um, Robin and I continued going out and I got a job at the round table. And I played at the round table five nights a week, $15 during the week, uh, $20 on the weekend. And $25, I think it was. And I, it was literally 2,000 people on the weekends each night. The round table was in one of those old-fashioned um, grand ballrooms in a hotel, which the grand ballroom that John Addison opened is a prime example of how fabulous those structures were. I mean, the grand ballroom in, in a hotel was like one of those things you see in the late, 1700s or the 1800s where they're all on different levels in boxes looking out over the big center dance floor and there's like three levels of boxes that was john addison's grand ballroom and that he opened above les jardins which is where i was working for a long time i worked for john he came to the gallery the first gallery and hired me and um that's a funny story too he said he came to the booth. He said, I want you to play at Leisure Dan. And I said, what's that? You haven't heard of Leisure Dan? It's like, Jack, yeah. it yeah. was. And that was like the second gallery was the Studio 54 at the time. Leisure Dan was the Studio 54 of that time, 72, 73. And um, 
Robin is standing there and she goes, he charges $50 a night. Now that was unheard of. People were getting 35 a night and that was a lot. That was the highest pay. And she says, he gets 50 a night. And John Addison says, who is that? Your agent? And I said, no, my girlfriend. Okay, 50 a night. <laughs> he had to just go with it. <laughs> so, remind, remind you, how much were they charging at the door for a club night like that? Do you um, I think he was charging 10, I believe. Right. So you have 2,000 people in Please there. search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.